welcome to the Wire to Wire podcast. As always, it's me, your host Yusuf. In this episode, I'm joined by special guest Jack Allwell. He's an actuary by trade, as well as an author and podcast host of the Brothers on Books podcast. In this episode, we discuss finance and give strategies on saving and investing. Jack also shares the formula he developed in regards to sports betting. This is an informative and interesting episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. Be sure to listen, like, share, and subscribe. So without further ado, let's just get right to it. All right, Jack, welcome to the Wire to Wire podcast. Uh, it's great to have you on. Thanks so much, Yusuf. No <laughs> it's great to be here. If you want to just tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Sure. So my day job is as an actuary and actuaries use a lot of mathematical methods and stats to basically deal with uncertainty. And that, that oftentimes involves projecting cash flows into the future. And then th- there are different ways of discounting that them back to the present. So we're, we're basically glorified budgeters, I would say. We're, we're setting the reserves. We're making sure there's enough money to pay out future claims. So we're, we're protecting the policyholders. I, I also love sports, soccer in particular, and recently came out with a book, Make Better Bets, where I, I tried to use some of my actuarial background to help with betting the 2018 World Cup. And yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm at. Um, <laughs> How long have you been like working in the field of uh, being an actuary? Sure. So it's a, it's a long road to become a fully credentialed actuary. And I, I had my first actuarial job in 2013, but there's a long road of exams that there's, well, I think they might be adding them now, but there's eight that I took. Mm -hmm. And I, I took my first actuarial exam in 2010 and I just got fully credentialed like a couple months ago. (laughs) So it was a long long road, a lot of, lot of failure involved. Started taking the exams in 2010 and they got my first, uh, I guess, big boy job in 2013. <laughs> Seems like you have a fairly, like you're fairly knowledgeable when it comes to like finances and things of that nature. I, I, I definitely have become very interested in personal finance. Actually in 2016, I lost a job and that, that kind of, I mean, a lot of people are going through hard times like now during COVID, but I, I felt like that was kind of my low point. Um, and I, I definitely, it was like my big reset. And when, when I lost that job, I kind of vowed to myself to get my, my life a little more organized and make it a little more robust. So I got very deep down the rabbit hole on just personal development, personal finance. And I kind of became obsessed after seeing my brother house hack and house hacking is where you you buy a house and rent out the rooms and try to eliminate your housing expense. And and it really helps you to have a a more robust life where you can then take all that money that you were spending towards house, your, your house expense, and then put it towards either investing or saving or, or a passion project like what I've done a lot in the past now. So yeah, definitely numbers and personal finance guy now. In terms of like the personal finance, right? Right now, you know, we're seeing like this great resignation that's happening where people are leaving their jobs and 
you know, large numbers are looking to explore entrepreneurship and things of that nature, right? In order to even make a decision like that, there has to be some level of financial acuity to know how to do something like that, right? And to prepare yourself for a big decision. So what would you say for someone that wants to really get their finances in order and wants to do well? Like, What would you say would be a, like a good step for them to take? I would say a good first step is to get a snapshot of where you are right now. And that I think is best done through just making a personal balance sheet. So balance sheet is like a snapshot of your financial health. You know, you got your assets and your liabilities and ho hopefully your assets are more than your liabilities, but I know a lot of people have student loan debt. So a lot of people are carrying negative net worths right now. But I think that's a great way to get started and kind of make a plan. Um, I, I actually update, uh, I have a spreadsheet now that I update every 10 days with my just a personal net worth. And I actually, every, every time I update it, I actually make a projection for the next 10 days. So whether it's paying down a mortgage or paying down some of your car, so you can kind of get better at projecting into the future. And, and it's just 10 days. So hopefully there's not too big of movements but I mean, obviously it's hard to project, you know, like what the price of Bitcoin is going to be or some of your stocks or whatever stuff like that. But it gets you in a mindset of kind of running your life a little bit more like a business, just being a little more organized. And I think a lot of people focus a little bit too much on just how much they're making and not how much they're keeping. And I think the balance sheet does a better job of kind of showing your financial health than just how much money you're making like from your day job so i i would say make a personal balance sheet yeah i think that's great advice and i think that's a great starting point and i like the part where you said it's not really about what you're earning but also what you're saving right mm -hmm. because yeah you can make a lot but how much of it are you retaining Ex so exactly so I think, yeah, that's a very important thing because a lot of times, a lot of people think, oh, I just have to, they have one job already. And it's like, well, I have to get a second job. But have you really looked at your current income to see how much of it you're actually saving? And then maybe you don't need to get a second job. Maybe it's just a matter of having to save or budget better, right? So I think that's definitely a great uh, starting point. I would agree with you there. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I mean, and I, I've been a victim of this sometimes in the past too, just like your life inflation, as you start making more money at like a typical day job, your expenses start creeping up and, you know, you want, you know, maybe a better car, you want to live in a nicer area, you want, you know, the luxury apartment. So, but, but at the end of the day, sometimes there's people making a hundred grand that are living paycheck to paycheck, just like the person that's making 40 grand. Or, or 20 grand. So yeah, it's a, uh, you, you got to watch out for that life inflation creep. <laughs> yeah. So, and even like, you know, sticking to the topic of uh, personal finance, right? What are some other strategies that people can do to really like, you know, maximize like their saving potential, but also find a way to like have their money grow and make their money work for them? Sure. Well, I would say just study as much as you can. Ask yourself, what is money? I mean, there, there's a great podcast. Uh, Robert Breedlove has been doing it with uh, a whole bunch of very great thinkers. And, and he kind of tries to answer the question, what is money? And it, it sounds like a simple question, but it's really when you start thinking about it. And then at the same time, you have governments around the world that are kind of printing money and sending checks to people. 
it kind of, you, your wheels start spinning a little bit and you start thinking, well, okay, well, what, what should I do to protect my purchasing power? So I, I think just studying like gold and Bitcoin um, are, are great tools to help you think about what, what actually is money. And so step one is kind of just preservation. You, you don't want to lose money. And, and the thing with the government's printing all this money is every time they do this, if, if there's more dollars in the system chasing the same amount of goods, those goods are going to become more expensive and that, that hurts your cash that's in your bank account. So if you are just holding on to cash right now, it's probably not the best uh, long term because I, I think the inflation number was just like 7% for, it might have been a single month. But I mean, if, if even 7% for a year, if you had your money sitting in, a, in just cash in a bank account, I mean, you're losing 7% a year to the government printing money. So I, I think just exploring ways to preserve that purchasing power, I think that's kind of like a good defense. Um, and, and I've actually been reading a lot about these people that are using whole life insurance policies for their banking policies. And that, that actually seems like a very good strategy to me instead of, so, so I mean, you can still have a bank account, but Basically, the only thing you're changing is the money is going into this whole life insurance policy first, and immediately it is accruing interest. And by law, I, I think they might have lowered it a little this past year, but it was 4% plus a lot of these mutual life insurance companies give a dividend too. So, I mean, you're, a lot of these bank accounts are given like less than a half percent on your savings. So, I mean, that, that that's a good place to start. But yeah, you just got to, I, I think studying and just reading as much of this stuff as you can uh, will really help in the long term. But I, 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 I hate to say it, but cash is kind of trash as, uh, right now because the governments are, are devaluing our money, unfortunately. Yeah, inflation is a real thing. I think I was reading it somewhere that they said in the past year alone, like the U.S. government, 60% of the, 40% of the money in circulation was printed in the past year. So inflation is becoming a global thing. So no matter where in the world you are, you are seeing the impact of it. Absolutely. Right now, there's a whole dip that's happening with the crypto market. I know a lot of people are panicking, but I mean, it's still a relatively new thing, right? So when you see a dip, that might be a good time to buy in, obviously, Absolutely. with the right amount of research and understanding of what you're getting into. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's definitely, I definitely agree. I think people should be open-minded and willing to learn when it comes to like investment strategies and yeah i mean one book that really changed my outlook was a short history of germany and they go af go on about after world war 1 during the the weimar republic it's a the, the probably i mean it's the most famous hyperinflation that i've read mm -hmm. I, I don't know if there's one way back in history that happened but i mean a lot of people were using the german marks uh, as like wallpaper because they were printing so much like it, it was like worthless so they were just like using it like everywhere and you see people like sweeping the dollars off the street because they're worthless <laughs> so it is a real thing and the, the people that were least affected during that weimar republic hyperinflation were the people that had a lot of real assets so like land or like real estate and then well the people that had like nothing no savings i mean if if you're uh you know just living I guess on the street and not really doing much, I guess you're also unaffected, but. 
I'm kind of glad that you touched on uh, real estate because yeah, I think that's also one of, that's also a proven effective strategy on how people can actually get, you know, good value for their money. Right. Um, Absolutely. So for someone that might be looking to like enter the uh, real estate market, right. What are some, like, what are some ways that they can approach it in terms of like how much they would need to start with? And Uh so, I mean, there's a couple of different ways you could come at this depending on, I mean, I did not have a lot of money when I kind of started into real estate. And so for me, house hacking was the best avenue I thought, because so a house hack, once again, is when you're trying to just use your primary resident to basically offset your living expense by having someone else pay your mortgage and the interest taxes and insurance and all that good stuff. And I mean, you might not be able to cash flow positive on it, but you could at least greatly reduce your living expense. And the good thing about living in a primary resident is when you're going for a loan, you might only need three and a half percent down of that, that home value versus if you're going for an investment property, a traditional bank would probably want 20 to 25% uh, down payment. Now, I will say uh, another way that I, I did have some ex- success and this was after my house hack. Um, I, I was listening to Bigger Pockets. I really like that podcast for anyone interested in real estate. I mean, there's a lot of good real estate podcasts, but I, I remember hearing a guy that would just cold call these owners and ask them, you know, do you want to sell your property? And I, now, after listening to like dozens of these these shows, I kind of thought okay, well, maybe I'll, I'll cold call, but I'm going to cold call property managers. So I, I started cold calling maybe one or two property managers a night. And these were all around by where I grew up in Michigan. I, I live in North Carolina. So it just goes to show you, you don't have to be close because the, the prices in Charlotte where, where I live now were a little higher and the, the rent ratios. So the amount of rent you get per uh, like hundred grand that you spend is not as attractive as like in by where I grew up in Michigan. So I was calling property managers in Michigan. This is about a hundred miles north of Detroit, and I was calling them, seeing if any of their clients were looking to offload for any reason. And I, I guess the reason I went with that route was because, well, one, I just wanted to talk to property managers to see like what how they saw the area, even though like I grew up around there, I kind of wanted their thoughts, but I could also tap into their funnels and they might, they might be managing a hundred, 200, 300 units at a time. And maybe one of their clients is kind of either um, maybe they haven't been paying the property manager. So the property manager has an incentive for them to sell it. And maybe, and what happened was after about a month of calling around, and I talked to this, this one property manager a couple of times. He said, I have a couple that's going through a divorce and it sounds like they need to offload their properties. So I actually uh, called them and they had three properties they wanted to get rid of all in one deal. And like I said, like normally if you go to a traditional bank, you might need 20% down. But I actually... I was having trouble going to traditional bank because I had no track record at this point. I was just a, a nobody, a noob. So I actually asked the, these, these, the former owners, the, the two going through the divorce, would you be willing to just sell or finance it for me? 
And, and all that means is they would basically be my bank. So I would, I would give them still a down payment, but I, I would make payments to them each month instead of making a payment to a bank. So, and, and that, that's kind of how I acquired three deals. And they, it was a very good deal, I thought, because, I mean, they, they had to, they, they were kind of rushed. So I, I was kind of helping them out by buying it from them. And, and now I, I use that same property manager. And a, a lot of property managers will charge about, I mean, I, I've seen a lot like charge just 10% of the gross rents. So some will like take like 100% of the first, first month rent if they fill a vacancy or if, if you transfer a property over to them, they might take 50% of the first month's rent. But it, it just goes to show you, you don't have to live by your rentals. And I, I, when I heard that someone talk about that on some podcasts, it, it really made me start thinking like, okay, I'm not just limited to where I live. Um, so I, I think that's very valuable for people. So if, if you might live in a, a pricier city where you, I mean, there's a real lot of competition or for whatever reason, it's, it's harder to get into, you might want to look outside of your city. Yeah, I think that's, that's valuable advice. Like you mentioned in Michigan, like I remember it was like the mid, like early 2010s and mid 2010s, property there was very cheap, especially like in Detroit. Yeah. So it's just a matter of, you know, it kind of comes back to what we're saying, like a matter of research, right? Finding the areas where things are affordable. In, in like this area in Michigan, like uh, like Bay City, Saginaw, Midland, um, yeah. I mean, it might cash flow better than Charlotte, like North Carolina, where I'm right now, but I'm guessing it's probably not going to appreciate the same way. So it's kind of like pick your battle and, you know, each, I mean, if you go for a higher price neighborhood, you're probably going to get a better quality tenant. So there's also like these kind of qualitative things you need to kind of weigh in your mind. But for me, not having any experience, it was like a cheaper way for me to get some experience and at least get into it and have some skin in the game where you, cause you, you really start learning when you have skin in the game. Like you can read all, all day long, but until you actually do it, it's, it's not really going to sink in. It's kind of like sports in a way, right? Like you can talk and analyze the game while you want, yeah. but when you actually play the game. It changes your whole perspective on things. Absolutely. Um, and also too, um, you did mention earlier that you have a, a book that you wrote in regards to sports betting, right? Uh, when it comes to sports betting, like, do you find that it has the opportunity or it has the ability to be as lucrative or what are your thoughts on, on that? So, yeah, so, so th there's definitely, I mean, there are some states now where you can almost arbitrage certain bets just because there's multiple sports books. Now in North Carolina, sports betting is still not legal. <laughs> um, so, and I was actually for, for, for this book, and I made a model for the World Cup. And the World Cup is probably not the best thing to try to model because the data, it's uh, kind of, th th there's a lot of noise and you have teams on different continents that never really play each other. So the data is kind of, it's kind of like a crapshoot. But I was betting a little more on groups where there was like multiple European teams. So I, I did have a lot of a data. But, but it, it just comes down to, you know, do you, how, how confident are you are in your data and, and, and then just sizing the bets appropriately. And, and there's a, a betting strategy called the Kelly betting strategy or sports betting strategy, which, which kind of helps you try to think through 
the optimal amount you should be betting given the probability you think that an event's going to happen and the odds that are given like at a sports book. So it's very interesting. And, and this book was kind of my post analysis trying to figure out, did I get lucky in some areas or did I get unlucky in some areas and, and was my allocation appropriate? So yeah. it's, it's, it's been a, a fun project. And I, I had to fit it in between actuarial exams because I was still studying. Congratulations on the book. You got it done. It's out there for the world to consume. Yeah. So if you had to kind of, I guess I would say, create like a formula around it, how much would you say comes down to like analytical research and understanding? And how much would you say boils down to luck? After I lost my job, I started reading a ton. And some of those books were like I read dozens of soccer books and there were two books that really stuck out to me. There was one that was called Soccernomics and one was called Money in Soccer. Both were written by Simon Cooper and um, Professor Szymanski, who's actually still a professor in the kinesiology department at Michigan. And I actually went to the University of Michigan. So I, I called them up and th there was an interesting study they did that tried to answer the question, what countries use their resources the best? So they were looking at variables like population, GDP per capita, and then the number of international games that that country had played. So they found that to be about thir like 30% predictive of a gold, like gold differential. So if you were to plug in, like, let's say Croatia and Brazil and use those three variables, it, it, it would spit out a gold differential. And then uh, across all the countries, th they would like say, well, what countries like kind of punch above their weight class. So that, that study really got me thinking, well, if you just got some, maybe some more predictive variables and then took it one step further and transferred, you, you kind of like bucket these teams for certain goal differentials. So you could bucket all the teams maybe like between 0.25 goals and 0.75 goals. So if you were predicted to, to win by that amount, and then you actually look at all those games where people fall in that category. How often do they actually win versus tie versus lose? And you map those in th those probabilities, and then you can simulate through that way. And that's what I wanted to do. And I found the FIFA rankings were pretty predictive and home field advantage. And, and I was looking at each individual conference or, or continent. And like so prior World Cups – um, European championships, African championships, all that good stuff. And I, I found it to be about, I think it was like around 60% predictive on um, most continents. It was a little more predictive in Europe. And I, I think that has to do with the, the traveling distances. I mean, I, I haven't proven this by any means, but it, it's just like the, the travel distance is less and the, like the home field advantage isn't quite as crazy as like in South America. They actually outlawed some of the South American teams from hosting in certain cities because they were hosting at these crazy high altitudes and like the opposing teams weren't used to it. And like uh, FIFA actually said that it was detracting from the quality of play. So they outlawed certain cities and you could kind of see in the data that certain teams were winning by more when they were home, even though the total number of goals was actually lower in South America than Europe. So I guess to, to answer your question, the, the whole study I did 
it was about 60% predictive. So there's still a lot of other variables I'm not capturing. Now, one thing also that was in Money and Soccer, that book, they, they did a study on salaries. And salaries are pretty interesting and very predictive. And it's something, at least in America, we don't really, I would not have thought of this actually, because a lot of our leagues have a salary cap. Now, I guess baseball doesn't, I don't think, but yeah, like, baseball but, yeah, but like that, I mean, the NFL, I mean, all these teams basically have the same amount of money to spend, but like in European soccer and outside of North America, basically there's no caps. So if the owners want to spend a lot of money on a player, you think that player is probably pretty good. And that's probably a pretty good indicator of, you know, the success of the team. Now it's not everything, but it's a very good indicator. And that study showed it was like a 90% predictive on the ending table in the English Premier League. So I guess that doesn't really talk too highly of like the coach's value, but, but maybe that extra 10% is all they need. So <laughs> basically I, I would have liked to have been able to acquire all of these player salaries, but at the time I found it very, it, it was very consuming and just, it's it's tough to get some of some of these these player data. I mean, if if someone's playing in one of these lower tier leagues in I don't know Poland or Nigeria, it's not always super easy to find. So yeah, and I I thought FIFA ranking was kind of a good proxy because you think higher salaries on a team and they'll have a a better FIFA ranking. That's a very uh, in depth analytical approach. It was a it was a real lot of fun. I think I recorded over like two thousand games since the '06 World Cup. I actually started out in '04, but then I found I, I found out they changed the the FIFA ranking methodology because they used to look at two World Cup cycles that went into someone's like FIFA ranking, mm-hmm. um, and then they they chopped it to just one World Cup cycle. So it looked at the last four years and it was kind of like a weighted average. So like, I mean, the most recent year counted for more than like a year ago and then two years ago, but that's kind of how they did it. So I I was looking at 06 to 18, basically in every conference. So it was a lot of fun. And but like I said, North Carolina, they didn't allow betting. So I I actually had to fly to, I, I flew to Philadelphia and then I drove down to Delaware and I, cause I had my dad had told me in a newspaper that <laughs> he, he found a sports book that was doing the World Cup bets. So, so basically, I was just comparing what my model thought the probability of was. So let's say like Mexico just to get out of their World Cup group. Mm-hmm. So the World Cup is composed like eight groups of four. So every group of four, like the top two teams get out and then the, the bottom two don't get out. So let's say I had Mexico getting out 50% of the time that they were in a group with Germany, Sweden, and South Korea. So let's say the the model has them getting out out 50% of the time. So if if I was flipping just a coin, like a normal coin, 50% head, 50% tail, I I would want to be paid at least a dollar for every dollar I bet. And like, you think like long-term, you're basically breaking even. But 
if I saw that a, uh, like the sports book was maybe offering a dollar and 15 cents for every dollar I bet, I'd be okay. There's like a positive expected value because over the long run, I'll get that 15 cents each, each time. So, so that's kind of the, the process I was, I was just looking at the, the probability that I had them getting out or not getting out of a group and then compare it to what the sports books were offering. And then, I mean, it, it, it but it, it comes down to that allocation and back to that, like Kelly sports betting. It, it's kind of tough though, when you have like Iceland getting out, let's say, let, let's say we had Iceland getting out 25% of the time. And I think that was about right. So if you have a quarter of a chance of something happening, like the risk neutral bet, I, I would say is like three to one. So for every dollar you bet, you should be getting at least $3. But like if, if they were offering $4, well, that's, that sounds pretty good. But, the, but at the end of the day, we only have them getting out 25% of the time. So it's still kind of risky because we don't get to like keep flicking the coin like over and over and over. We, we kind of get one go at this. So, so that's kind of where I, I might have lacked on some discipline in the allocation. So that, that, that's kind of what the, the book tried to answer. So if I'm not mistaken, I do believe there is a, a World Cup happening this year. Absolutely. It's in uh, Qatar, Qatar, however you... <laughs> um, they, now, they, they were actually... This is funny, though, because it it's typically in June and July. But because it's so hot in Qatar in the summer, they've, they've now moved it to November. So I don't know how that's going to affect or play into, because um, it's in the middle of a lot of the domestic season. So like people that play in the Premier League are going to have to take a break to go play in the World Cup. So I don't, I'm not exactly sure how that's going to shake up. Or I, I know some teams are very upset about this, but I, I think it'll be fun. <laughs> yeah. For this part of my podcast, so I like to call it open floor. So basically what it is, is you have just an open floor, uninterrupted time. Um, is there anything that you would like to discuss or anything that you would like to communicate to the audience? It's all yours. I would just like to say to your audience that I think it is very beneficial to pursue passion projects just for the sake of it. I think anyone would be able to learn a tremendous amount if you just devote maybe just a couple hours a night to something that you're really interested in, whether it's reading or um, some sort of studying or or doing something in Excel, welding, woodworking. And I think it'll really start paying dividends down the road when you start seeing connections between different things that you've learned in the past. And I, I kind of just see it as a, a well-rounded life that's, that's well-lived. And I, I guess that's what I'll say. And that's what I'm always, I guess, preaching on this podcast or like the message that I'm delivering is you want to have that kind of life where I call it like holistic living, where it's just all the different aspects of your life. You control the different aspects of your life to make sure that it's going the way you want it to go. And I think it all comes back to that journey of self-discovery. And I think hearing you speak about, you know, the finance and the sports betting, I think the one theme that I found that constantly came up was, you know, research and understanding. And I think that's really a critical key to any aspect of life. Research as much as you can, try to gain as much knowledge as you can. But then it's also important to apply everything that you've learned. Absolutely. Yeah, because you definitely retain more things the more you you put them into action. You mentioned your book. So, you know, if you want to plug that a little bit, you know, where can people find your book if you want to kind of give a synopsis sure. of what it's about? Sure, sure. It's So the, the book is called Make Better Bets. 
It's a, an actuary's quest to bet the Russian 2018 FIFA World Cup with Excel. You can get it on Amazon right now. It will be on my blog, I think, in the next like two months. My blog's fired to fire, but it's the 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 book is about it's also about my roots trip. I, I, I don't know if I talked about this already. The after I got fired in 2016, I took a trip to Europe to see where my grandparents grew up. So, and, and that's kind of when I started reading uh, that, that whole trip kind of funneled into all these little passion projects. So I kind of interspersed stories from that trip with all the soccer modeling and the interactions with the professor at Michigan and getting the data and setting up the model and, and the actual results and post analysis. So if you're at all interested in soccer or sports analytics or just interested in hearing a crazy story, it's, uh, it's a, yeah, I had a lot of fun writing it. So it's out there for people. And my, my brother and I actually just started, well, we've been doing it like over a year now, but a podcast called the brothers on books podcast. So we're pretty active on that website and you can get that stuff at brothersonbooks.com. So, because you did mention 2016, I did, I do recall that you mentioned it earlier in the conversation. So, yeah, you said that was kind of like a downtime for you. So, would you say that that trip you took was the catalyst to help you like overcome it? Or what would you say helped you overcome that period in I, your life? Yeah, it definitely, um, that, that was life changing for me in so many ways. Uh, my, so my grandfather grew up in Krakow in Poland. And luckily, he left Poland before the Nazis started controlling that area. And when I was visiting Krakow, and I went to the Auschwitz concentration camp, it was just very touching for me being so close to Krakow. And Krakow, um, it was just a very eerie feeling for me. Because I mean, in a, in a different universe, I, I might have grown up there. <laughs> so it's kind of crazy in that respect. But yeah, I, I had a lot of questions on that trip. So I, a, a lot of the reading actually started with World War II and Auschwitz. And, and I, I actually met my now wife on that trip, believe it or not, in Vienna, Austria. So that, that trip really set, set me up and I, I changed my life a lot from that trip. So yeah, if you're ever in a funk, traveling's a good way to do it. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it was a, a life-changing trip. Yeah, I'm glad everything worked out for you the way that it did. Yeah, Jack, thank you so much for joining me on the Wire to Wire podcast. It was great having you on. Thanks so much, Yusuf. You're always welcome to join in the future as well. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Wire to Wire podcast. Be sure to share and subscribe. You can also check out all of my books, including my latest one, Quarantine Thoughts, available at all major retailers. You can also follow me on Instagram at Yusuf underscore A official. Until next time.